Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Okay, can you hear me? I can. And I can hear you, so this is wonderful. Um, We had some technical difficulties for everyone to hear on that end. So um, I have with me, I'm not going to share her full name, but her name is Michelle. And I I love her. Um, She and I are mutuals, and we follow one another on Twitter. And... Just some of the engagement that you and I have had back and forth on different topics of discussion and things like that. I think there's some things that we may not necessarily completely agree on, but we have had very good conversations and interactions with one another. So I thought that this would be a really fun opportunity because of your background. So a couple of the things that you've like slid into conversations, I'm like, man, I bet she has just seen and done so much. And then now... After having read some of your work, I'm like, holy bananas, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. So if you could, for just a second for me, kind of give me and the audience just a little bit of a rundown of your background and the world that you come from and just start, I guess, maybe like late 70s and then to now, like kind of give a little bit of a brief bio of what who you are and what you've got going on. Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area, which is actually huge. And um, when I was a teenager, I got into punk rock, I guess when I was like probably in my senior or junior year, I don't know. I can't remember, but um, so that kind of, you know, put me on a certain trajectory in a way. I was always really into music. Music is a huge part of my life. I started going to concerts and stuff when I was like 12 years old. So um, I wanted to be a journalist, and but I was kind of a wild child, I guess you would say. And so I wasn't very <laughs> academic. I wasn't academic. And my parents were very accomplished people, And so they kind of didn't have a huge amount of confidence in me. They wanted me to be a court reporter because I was a fast typist. And anyway, so I did, I tried, I went to like junior college. So being that I wasn't academic, I could only go to junior college. And I went and I went on my, on my final, (laughs) my final exam for journalism. I went there tripping on acid. (laughs) God, I hope this isn't too much for for you. No, it's listeners. great. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So anyway, suffice to say that that was the end of that. And then I was kind of like, you know, I mean, but wait, hold on. You tr- you were tripping acid when you took your final. Like, how did you score? Like, how did you do on your final? I mean, I couldn't do. I couldn't do it. I walked in. <laughs> I didn't know it was the final exam. So I just, <laughs> I just kind of walked in and it was like, oh my God, it's final. Exam. Oh my <laughs> God, I this just, is great. You know, I had no confidence that I could pull it off. So I could have, but I didn't have confidence that I could. 
So I left and I failed. You know, that was like an instant fail. And then I gave up. I just gave up on the whole idea, college, journalism, the whole thing. And then I decided I wanted to be a makeup artist. I don't even know really where that came from, but I was kind of into style and stuff, I guess. So I decided I want to be a makeup artist. And my parents were like, okay, you know, we'll pay for you to go to beauty school. So I went to beauty school. This is in early 80s. and in between, you know, there's a lot of punk rock shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. But, and and I met, you know, in Los Angeles at the time in the early punk rock scene, um, there were a lot of people who I knew and partied with that weren't famous but became famous. Right. And um, so anyway, there was that going on. And then I was always working. I was always working like retail or something. I was you know, I had a good worth work ethic. I just was like a partier. So I went to beauty school and then that got me tapped into the whole gay scene because all the gays went to beauty school. And so then I like, <laughs> I kind of got like got into that world a little bit. But, um, and then I just, I was so lucky and I, I landed an amazing job almost right out of beauty school working at a ver- for a, for one of the great makeup artists um, out of that area. And she was opening a chair, a station in like the most famous salon in the United States, which was Jose Iber, which at the time, it was like a household name in the 80s. No, right. Probably no one, no one knows now, but this guy was, Jose was famous because, well, he created all the big hairstyles of the 80s. Like, that was his creation. And also, he was super flamboyant, gay, and um, wore this cowboy hat all the time. Never took it off. He had, like, long hair and a cowboy hat. (laughs) And so everybody assumed he was bald, you know, under that hat. Anyway, he was kind of, he, he was really a jerk. I didn't get along with him. He had very strict rules about certain things. And, um... We didn't get along. Like so what kind of rules did he up, have that you didn't like? You had to wear everybody. That, he went through this phase where he wanted everybody in the salon to wear white lab coats. And you couldn't. And so, I mean, from your neck to the floor. But why? So I he thought it looked professional. I don't okay. know. Because when you're in beauty school and stuff, you wear lab coats. Right. It just looks uh, clean, I guess. It's actually, when you're doing makeup, it's pretty hard to keep that clean. But anyway, so for me, you know, I just, the, I ha- I liked to express myself, you know, with how I dressed at the time. Obviously, sure. I was, you know, punk rock. I was really into vintage clothes. And I just, you know, I, I was pissed. I was like... No. <laughs> so yeah. I did it, but then I, I rebelled by <laughs> I rebelled by wearing these really just colorful, crazy pattern scarves around my head. Like I would wrap my whole head in these scarves. <laughs> and you know, it was kind of like a middle finger to him. It was sure, like my sure. way of going, you're not gonna take my, you know, you're not gonna do that to me. And so 
suffice to say, I just wasn't happy there. This was like, this was on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. It just wasn't my thing. Like it yeah. wasn't my scene, you know, but I did have a lot of interesting encounters when I worked there, you know. So tell um, me about, <laughs> okay, so from the makeup world, tell me about like the the most memorable makeup job that you ever did. Well, you know, it wasn't always the makeup jobs that I did because I worked in salons. I mean, I did some photography stuff, but working in the salon, it, I was one makeup artist in a room full of hairdressers. So most of my stories are more like encounters than people that I actually worked on. Okay. I mean, like I, I, Stevie Nicks sat in my chair, but I didn't do makeup on her. I guess there was this um, actress Oh, God, I can't remember her name, but I feel like she was on Melrose Place, maybe. Her name was Lisa something. And I turned her on to <laughs> mustard color eyeshadow, which was like, at the time, you know, back then, it was a very different time. You know, sure, people, sure. the things that you see today, people did not, I mean, people, you couldn't have a job and have like your hair pink or something, right. or, you know, wear like, you know, really crazy makeup and stuff. You could, you wouldn't work if you looked like that. So I feel like yeah, mustard eyes kind of evolved into like what is now like the emo like group of individuals. I think it's, it's more like woke. I mean, I feel like social justice warriors completely stole punk rock uh, aesthetics. It pisses yeah. me off. Yeah, I, I can imagine from a political perspective sitting and watching women scream with punk rock look, but then acting completely childish and immature. <laughs> yeah. It has to be hard. Well, then there's the whole part. Then there's, you know, actual people that used to be in the punk rock scene or still supposedly are, who are also have that, who are leftists, who are commies, right. you know? I mean, yeah, and that's like the majority. like Rage like Against the, the Machine comes out and is now oh, like- God. <laughs> yeah rage on behalf well, I saw of the machine <laughs> yeah i saw that yesterday on twitter so funny <laughs> they were always corporate though that's the thing people don't they were always full of shit right um okay so so, so stevie nick sat in your chair what else i mean i met madonna and sean penn i mean um that's pretty cool, though, right? Yeah, I got a phone. I talked to Gene Simmons on the phone. This is a good. This is kind of funny. Gene Simmons called to find <laughs> to find out how much it would cost to have his whole body uh, waxed, like to have his entire like body, all his yeah, all, not head, but you know, oh, neck okay. down, body wax. Like he was very hairy. I don't know that I ever wanted or needed to know that about Gene Simmons, I was, but that's cool. Yeah, I was like, there is no, there's no prize. Like, that's not happening. At least I'm not doing it. Do you think that, so when you originally got into makeup, what made you want to do that? Because I, you said like you got to the point where it wasn't really your style. I can't. Like knowing your personality, imagining you doing makeup for what would be probably like high profile 
individuals on Rodeo Drive. Like, I just can't imagine you in that scene. So, well, yeah, the thing is, I grew up in a fairly, um, uh, what's the word I want? I grew up in a somewhat of a wealthy environment. Right. The the place that I grew up, the town where I went to high school and stuff. But um, my family was like upper middle class, suburban. You know, I mean, we were sort of well to do, I guess you would say, but I never really kind of related. And so, but that's still in me, you know, but so I had the ability to, I could interface with anyone. I'm still this way. I can interface with anybody, like homeless people to celebrities. And um, so I feel like it was, it was partly my own insecurity of feeling that I wasn't worthy of uh, a career that used my brain, you know, and partly it was just like kind of a little bit self-sabotage. And then partly it was, I actually loved doing makeup on myself and hair. Like I was into style. And so it was, and at that time that was a big thing. It was very big. And so, um, so those two things kind of came together to, create that and it's honestly it probably seemed really easy (laughs) right I mean it was pretty easy easy to get you know certified and all that how did you transition it from punk rock makeup world into journalism because I you you quit school but then you went on to actually become what I like I, I was reading through a lot of your stuff um in preparation and I I was like, oh my God, I hope she never goes and reads my blog because you're an editor. And so <laughs> she would just cringe uh, if I she don't read judge. through my stuff. <laughs> I don't judge, but um, it's hard. It's not easy. Writing is very difficult. Writing well is, you know, it's just a, something you have to do so much. You know, you have to polish, polish, polish. But um, yeah, so... Oh, what am I trying to say? Or I lost my train of thought. And I'm drinking coffee, so I should really my brain should be sharp right now. Okay. When um, did you okay, I'll so read the question. I yeah. quit No, it's okay. I quit makeup. I quit just makeup. Cold turkey just was, quit. I, I just quit because it was so superficial. At a certain point, I just couldn't do it anymore because you're literally looking in the mirror all day, all day long. You're looking at yourself and other people in the mirror and everybody's totally self-obsessed and insecure. (laughs) And it's just like, it's, it's just, I'm not really a superficial person. So it just started to bug me. And I was like, this is just not, I don't want to do this anymore. So then I went through this kind of a dark period of, um, getting in some trouble and getting a DUI and all this awful stuff and and then working really crappy retail jobs for a long time. I worked a bunch of really crappy retail jobs and then I got married. I married somebody from the punk rock scene, a drummer, got married and had a kid. Is that the dreamer all person that really- you talk about? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> That's just a boyfriend. Yeah. So 
I don't, I haven't talked about my, my ex-husband. I mean, I don't know if I will in my book, but, um, so yeah, got married in, at the end of the eighties. So, you know, the end, the last few you know, years of the eighties was basically me trying desperately trying to get my shit together and figure out who I was, you know, and kind of work through a lot of core issues and grow up, you know, basically just grow up and learn to like myself and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then that led to me, um, basically getting married. And then I had a kid like right away. And then um, ended up having to move from Los Angeles because financially it just made sense for us to move. And so we relocated. And then about two years, when my son was about, I was devoted to being a stay-at-home mom. I was, I had, I always had like traditional values and I was really into certain aspects, traditional aspects of, of parenting and motherhood and all that stuff. I was pretty, you know, pretty intense about it. So was I didn't want to work. Like conceptually in my mind, I think California has always been California, right? Like I just, it has always been on the verge of a more non-traditional scene, I guess is the best way I know how to word it. Was it hard maintaining those traditional values or the idea of being a stay-at-home mom or, you know, something along those lines? while being in California as close to, you know, LA and things like that? No, because there's always, it's, you know, people tend to, we all do this with all the states that we haven't lived in or aren't familiar with. We tend to have this idea that like, it's all one way. And California is really diverse, especially North and South, you know, East, there's like very different types of people. And, um, and so within those populations, there's always kind of niche or like subcultures. Sure. And um, so I always found my people, you know. Right. And so even, you know, I got like I was really into breast, like long term breastfeeding and stuff like that. And I found my people. And so it was all good. But yeah. And, and of course, that was trendy also at the time. Anything in the LA area that's trendy, you know, that's, right. it's like people are really into that. Like, like they glom onto trends. So, I mean, that's not where I live. I live an hour from there and, and that's where I have lived since I left Los Angeles. But anyway, so, um, then my, so I stayed home and I just kind of did, I just dove completely into, being a mom and wife and homemaker and all that. And I was really happy. Honestly, I was happy. I love, I make keeping a home, having a beautiful home and being able to cook for your family and, you know, and take care of your child to me is everything like that's, there's nothing more beautiful or important than that. So refreshing to hear somebody say that. Keep going. And I was lucky because when I had my kid, I didn't know I was like that. I didn't even really want kids. I mean, I didn't not want them, but I just, I wasn't one of those people that was like, I can't wait to have a baby or anything. Right. But when I had one, it's this, the minute that he was born, essentially, I was like, my uh, instincts kicked in like, like crazy. I mean, my mother instincts just went full on and I was surprised. Yeah, it was cool. It was kind of cool. I mean, it it revealed to me 
this whole side of myself I didn't know existed. Right. But then it also, and you, you probably know this as well, when you become a mother, it also kind of tickles your, some of your shit. And, you know, it like, right. it awakens, it kind of messes with, if you have core issues and wounds and things like that, you know, child, especially if anything from childhood, when you, mm-hmm. when you become um, a parent, it kind of exposes those to a little bit to yourself. Right. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, so anyway, when he turned five, I felt like when he turned, I don't know, close to five, I was starting to feel like I wanted to write. And so I started writing. This was like early internet days. I had like a little website. I like sort of like a blog. I don't think they were there. What there were blogs. They were called something else. Okay. But I I had one called Tales from the Crib. <laughs> and so I just wrote all my like horror stories about so mother like the original mom stuff. blogger. <laughs> I don't know because <laughs> it was just so different then. You know, right. you were like just out there in this giant sea of like. I mean, it was harder to find stuff. So um, anyway, I did that and I kind of started exercising my writing muscles and and realizing, hey, like I can do this, you know, and and then right. I did it. I entered some contests and I started just like massaging that a little bit. And um, so there was a, a weekly newspaper in my area that was looking for a, um, an editorial assistant. And I was always looking at the help wanted ads. This is when you looked at in the newspaper for help wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Are you being sarcastic? Yeah, no, I'm I'm just joking. Like I, I, I was just kidding. Okay. Yeah. So they used to, yeah, that's how you used to get information was from paper. And I would always look at those ads because there was like a little part of me that, you know, kind of was like wanting to maybe do something a little bit, just a tiny bit of something. Right. And outside my house and my son was getting, starting to get old enough where he could go to at least preschool, you know? And so I applied for this job as an editorial assistant. I had to take, I had no experience, you know, I had to take a proofreading test and then um, a personality test. (laughs) I had to do all this stuff and I got the job. So that was kind of the beginning for me of, of that career, which, you know, I worked, so I, I pretty much always worked in the, alternative news weekly arena and that is also very liberal like super liberal and I was also very liberal but um so then I I kind of I just proved myself and they gave me more and more stuff to do and they just really liked my work I was just so lucky I had a an editor who was my mentor who really believed in me and he he like nurtured me, you know, and, and he would, he gave me the harsh criticism, you know, when I need, you know, I mean, that's, if you're going to get better at something, you have to be able to handle some harsh criticism. And yeah, for um, sure. so that really, 
Yeah, that's so important. And that really shaped, helped shape me a lot into a better writer. I just got better and better. And then eventually they needed an, an entertainment editor. And so they kind of just put, created a position for me. It didn't exist. And so then I did that. And I did that for years for this particular weekly. And then I would also contribute my own articles to other weeklies in the in the region. And that kind of went on. So um, and that had, you know, some different some different um, lives or whatever different, you know, I went in and out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I worked from home for a certain amount of time, stuff like that. And then about five or four years ago, I can't remember, I quit and then decided I wanted to finally like write my book. And that's where I'm at. That's so awesome. So, okay. I want to backtrack on a couple of things and then transition forward a little bit. So I want to go back to the makeup thing real fast. And I know that completely we've moved past that, but I want to go back to it really fast. So when you were talking about people being fake and I, it's interesting because you don't, I don't conceptually think about the eighties being a fake period of time, but that's because I was a child and at that time, right? I was born in 83. So in my mind, I think of, you know, the shows that were on television. Today's world for me feels like just a glossed over everything is fake. The pictures that you see are all filtered to an extreme level. And um, I, I've, I'm learning that there are like different personalities, like people are a different person online than they are in person. And so are there any parallels that you see from being in that world and, and exposed to that and how that has transcended into today's living with the, the people who are now my age that are coming out of being the children of the people that you were dealing with? Do you think that that's transitory or do you think that, that it's just each unique in each generation? It's just the um, same no, thing, I a different think it version has- of it. No, I think it's evolved. I think it's, it's, um, it's progressed, you know, yeah. like f- what you're saying is right. I mean, I, I feel like you're right on target with that. Um, the thing is, yes, everything is much more artificial now. I mean, they're trying to push us into a completely artificial world. And so, um, you know, but the, the thing is for me, it's where I was living. When you live in the middle and work in the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. it's a different world. And so what ha- and so everybody is fake. <laughs> everybody right. in that area, in that business, I mean, is pretty fake. Like even if you get to know people, I mean, underneath that is m- usually a lot of insecurity. Most of those people are very insecure and um and kind of hate themselves and they're really hard on themselves and so uh, but the obsession with how you look you know and that's it, right. it's that way now it too in in the LA area and when i moved here it wasn't it wasn't like that where i live now you know i was a little bit far away enough that people were kind of normal and i i loved it but now it's just like that so i think what happened is you know, I was living in a micro, not a microcosm. I was living in a certain, um, 
like subset or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that over time, over the decades following, that became the dominant culture. Right. So that, you know, they've they, you know what I mean? Yeah, whoever sure. they are. Who, the powers that be. Right. <laughs> those freaking assholes. They have created this um sort of uh, entertainment-based paradigm really to just profit you know and it's sure. and and it's full of the i mean the people at the top of that the people that get the exposure and everything else are the most horrible artists and people and you know and so they've created like they've turned the whole world into hollywood everybody thinks that they are and deserve to be famous everybody wants to be a star in some way, even if it's just on Instagram, you know, and everybody's concerned with all of that kind of shit when really, you know, we need people that can do real things. Right. And I think it's all by design. You know, I think they want us like that. So like we make jokes all the time about being in a simulation and it's almost like they're literally trying to create one. They're trying to create a world where they can control everything. They can control what's trending. They can well, control yeah. what you wear. They can control what you eat. It's, it's. We're like, yeah, through both overt measures and you know, s- you know, psychological warfare and social engineering and all of those things come together. I and mean, this is a long game, sure. You know, and we're like nearing the end. I think of the game. Right. We're at least we're in the home stretch for sure. And so they've been playing this long game for centuries upon centuries and it's just really ramped up in the in the in the 20th and 21st centuries so yeah i think that people are kind of in a way more fake now the good Mm -hmm. news for me to me is the pendulum always swings you know one way before it swings the other way so and then before it reaches kind of a center point and i feel like we're going to come out of all this so much better. I mean, I really have a lot of hope that people are going to begin, and I think it's already happening with younger people, that people will begin to crave just more natural, organic ways of living. And we might be forced, you know, we may be forced into that. But sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. No, I like tangents. They're fun. (laughs) Um, What I I appreciate about what you just said is it's very interesting. And you make an incredibly good point with changing the way that we live, right? So um, some people were talking uh, about, I, I, you may have even interacted on the tweet, and I always hate talking about Twitter whenever I come on my podcast, but that's where you and I know one another, so it's easy for me to engage that way. But mm-hmm. um, we were talking about kids and social media, and because that woman with Facebook or, or whatever came out and did that test, that quote-unquote whistleblower or whatever, and mm. – when she came out and she was talking about like, oh, we need to protect the kids. And it was like, um, whose kids are on Facebook? And if they are, why are they there? Like, yeah, who's making the choices to let their unprotected 10-year-old be online or 16-year-old even? You know what I mean? Like, are these parents not watching them? And why is it Facebook's job or even the government's job to manage what my child engages with. That's my job as the parent, right? So you talking about um, 
about changing the way that we live, my daughter will not have a smartphone until she is old enough to understand how to handle herself. She'll have a jitterbug like a grandma. She'll be able to call. What is a jitterbug? It's just like one of those, like, it's made for old people. And it's all it has are like big numbers on it. And you can just dial phone numbers. That's it. Like you, like you have like four <laughs> buttons or whatever. So <laughs> that's okay. all she's going to be able to do. And she'll have that until she graduates high school. <laughs> how, how old is she now? She's nine. Like it's not something that I have to worry about. But you know what? Okay. So I told this story. I'll share this with you. This is supposed to be about you, not me. But um, I'll share this story with you. Uh, there was a little girl, we were at gymnastics practice and they're both in their little leotards. And the one little girl is two years younger than my daughter. So she was seven. She pulls out her iPhone 11, sets it down on the ground and is like propping it up to start recording them dancing for TikTok. And Mm. I stepped in and I said, I'm sorry, you know, and I almost said her name, but I'm sorry, we don't do that. Um, I don't um, allow her to do videos for TikTok. So I'm sorry, but that's something that I don't approve of. And I'm not trying to be mean. You know, that's just one of our rules in our house. And my daughter looked at her and said, yeah, China steals those videos and sells them to perverts. So you should probably <laughs> delete that app. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I I That's at least great. am glad that my daughter pays attention to the things that I say, even if like they that may not so be true. That is so great. True, but <laughs> I think it is true. <laughs> well, that I think is Singapore true. is actually currently suing them right now for doing just that. So anyway. TikTok um, is the devil. I mean, people are tri- – there are pervs all over the place trying to look at your children. Yeah. You know, people need to understand that. I mean, to me, a huge part of being a parent, if not the hugest part, is obviously protecting your child. But in, within that, you're always holding, you're kind of holding the outside world at bay a little bit, you right. know, trying to kind of preserve their innocence as much as you can. Yes. And I feel like that is your responsibility. And, it, and, and I hate, I, I just can't even handle it when I see people, the way people are. I mean, when I, when my son, who's 26, when he was little, my big thing was like South Park. Like you, you cannot, you're not going near South Park, Simpsons, all that stuff to me was like really bad. And it was just like, I wanted him to stay innocent for as long as he possibly could. Now you, people would call me a helicopter mom, whatever, fuck off, you know, (laughs) but it's funny you go from punk rocker doing acid in your final exam to being like, don't watch the Simpsons. I know. I thought The Simpsons was so subversive. I hated The Simpsons. And it's so funny because at that time when I was working at this paper, my editor used to always tell me, he would say, you're kind of conservative, aren't you? And I was like, no, I'm not. And and like it turned out I was kind yeah. of. Yeah. You know, but it's really funny not, because it's not like. Ever- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There's a little bit of a lag. So I when I'm interrupting you, it's not because I'm doing it on purpose. It's just because I miss the 
the queue where you're still talking, but um, I was going to say it's interesting because it's almost like you you weren't conservative and then I would like based off of your story and what I know about you so far, it's almost like when you had children, you became a little bit more conservative. Yeah. I mean, I think that happens. I mean, you grow up. I mean, if you don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to sound too opinionated, but I, I just think that when you are responsible, when you feel the weight of responsibility of this person's life that you have now, you know, that you carry, it's kind of heavy, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, if you don't every single day regard that, you know, with the, um, with the, the weight that, you know, it really is, you're kind of failing. I mean, it's hard. Parenting is the hardest thing in the world. It's, it's thankless, you know, it's exhausting. And it's, it, at the end of the day, you're nurturing this person to, to grow up and leave you. Right. I mean, the whole thing, it's like pretty brutal in a lot of ways. But, yeah. um, you know, you have to step up. It's like you got to step up for the challenge. And I mean, I got divorced in the meantime and stuff. I mean, there's a lot in there. But, um, you know, your job every day is to make sure no harm comes to that child. And, and then it gets, you know, more complicated as the years go on, kind of. But, yeah, so I, I could not imagine being a parent of small children right now. I don't even know what I would do. I mean, I know that I would be homeschooling. I mean, there's a lot of things I know I would be doing if I provided I had, you know, the resources and the good fortune. But, um, holy shit, I can't imagine a harder time to be raising children. Yeah, I have a good friend who's in California right now. She's in a really precarious position. Um, she and her spouse are do not see eye to eye politically with one another. They're diametrically yeah. opposed from that perspective. They're still, I mean, lovingly married. They're in a relationship, but they they just don't see eye to eye on on that particular aspect of life and now it's coming down to a situation where it's about to be required for children to receive the vaccine in California it's being mandated yeah. by you guys and or not you but not us but, guys right <laughs> okay by the state i'm sorry um and you know she's in a position where she's like no my son is not getting this and her husband is is pushing for him to do so so it's creating even issues within relationships that should not be created like it's the states getting involved in things that's none of their business as far as yeah. i'm concerned when it Absolutely. comes to children when it comes to everything oh, but yeah okay yeah fair fair point yeah. Um, okay. So now I want to transition back to your, your journalism stuff. You have a quote on your site that just really made me really happy. Um, and I want to re remember it. Uh, it was like journalism is what someone else does not want printed. Everything else is public relations, which is, I think, a George Orwell yeah. quote. It's yeah. probably one of the most <laughs> profound statements in today's day and age because there there it feels 
as if there is no such thing as journalism anymore. It's, it's very much print what you're told to or what, what you're supposed to now, not the truth or even asking questions anymore. It's like, it's not permitted. Yeah. I mean, in the mainstream, you know, I I don't know what else. I mean, I hate to say it. Yes. It doesn't even really exist. I mean, I come from a time where you would, you know, the, I remember getting your news like twice a day on TV and then the newspaper, you know, and right. I remember on Sundays I would, I would like read the whole LA times every Sunday. It was like a huge part of my life from cover to cover. And, um, I never really questioned what I was reading, you know, right. but when I became a journalist and I did now, I was mostly in entertainment. I mean, that was my, that was my my milieu but then I did do some investigative pieces I did do some news and investigative um, pieces locally and of course even in the you know even in entertainment when I was interviewing people and stuff I had a very high standard for myself and the people that worked under me and so to me you know even though I didn't I don't even have a degree but having been um, such an avid reader for most of my life and, um, you know, just kind of absorbing all that, like by osmosis, I kind of just gained sort of a journalistic ethic, you know, without really knowing the rules. It's just, I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's basic moral shit. Like, and this is my, which I don't really want to talk about, but this is kind of my issue with Project well, you don't Veritas have to. I mean, if it's is, not something you want to. I'm just. No, I'm just saying about the Ver because I had messaged you. I wanted to talk about Project Veritas, but now I don't think I do. Really? But why? I just want to say that. Why don't I want to talk about it? Yeah. Because so many, because I mentioned it on Twitter and I just, you know, it's like people, it's really hard to find people who can come with you into the sort of gray area of things. It's like, right. They can't understand. It's like if I'm saying I have an issue with the way Project Veritas gets their information, or I have an issue with the fact that they're putting people on camera without their permission, you know, then immediately, you know, for a lot of people, what that translates to is I have sympathy for Pfizer or something like that. And I've been like, I've been on the, on the big pharma. I mean, like, I know that you're not anti-vax and I wouldn't call myself anti-vax. However, I did stop vaccinating my son after like the second round, I think. <clears throat> but, um, and I, and I wrote articles about this shit way. I mean, like in the, in like the early nineties. So I've been on this tip for a long time and I know a lot about it. And, um, why am I talking about that? Oh, because I was saying that there are some things that, oh, to defend myself, to say I'm not, I have zero sympathy for Pfizer. I hate Pfizer. Okay. Right. But at the same time, I can say that I feel kind of bad for that one scientist guy who is 
just sort of waking up to the reality of where he works and what they're doing and what's happening in the world. This has come down pretty fast for a lot of people. Some of us have seen this coming for a long time, but some people, most people haven't, and they're just seeing it. And if you're working in that industry and you are one of the few people that's taking issue morally with what's going on, and then freaking Project Veritas comes in there and interviews you unknowingly and put you're totally on blast. Now you're going to lose your job for sure. And right. you're going to be, you're just going to deal with, I mean, so character assassination, like every bad thing's now going to happen to this guy. And I feel bad for him. And so, and I also think that in the process of that, Veritas kind of shoots themselves in the foot or not them, but sort of the, what they're trying to accomplish because this guy could have been, remaining on the inside waking up and then actually like doing something in there you know i mean mean? you could have done a long-term i guess sting operation would be the best way to put it like where we made it all the way to the end and here's all of the things that actually happened like you could have done and so i agree with you i i that's why i wanted to talk about this and wasn't still want to talk about you, but I do want to have this conversation with you because you come from this world, right? So I know not necessarily investigative journalism and things like that, but the ethics behind it, and I kind of had this, when you mentioned it to me, I kind of had this debate in my head where do you unethically gain the information or do you receive the information and unethically refuse to put it, put it out there? Right. So it made me think about um, remember that ABC reporter that got all of that information on Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Clinton mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And then they killed the story and said, just mm-hmm. kidding, we're not going to put this out there. Think about how many girls were raped and went through what they went through. If she had put that story out in the beginning, think about all of the people who would have not been traumatized in that situation. So, which is, you know, it's not necessarily a which is worse. But which would I prefer, right? So um, do I feel bad for the scientist? Yes. Is he probably still going to have a, a lucrative career somewhere in big pharma, maybe just not at that company? Yes, most likely. You think? You think? Yeah, what? Maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, he, he fundamentally disagrees with their tactics at this point. So I feel like he's going through an awakening. Some people are going through awakenings right now. And it's for a reason. You know? Well, have and, you I mean, seen like the guy who level. actually, like, the guy who actually created the mRNA vax, like, the mRNA part of the vaccine? The doctor yeah. who did that, he is, like, he just tweeted out today. He was like, nobody's talking about all of the negative impacts of these drugs. And yeah. he's the one who created it. Like, he's the main person. I mean, there's so many of those kinds of stories. And, you know, the thing, I mean, what else do you need to know? To me at this point, I don't know what else you need to know, um, you know, to make an intelligent decision about this and to understand what is happening and how this is by design and everything else. But in in going back to the journalism thing, there's like, to my mind, there's two things happening, two things that have destroyed journalism as as we once knew it one of them is 
ethics, yes, and being controlled. I mean, it started when all the media, you know, companies started conglomerating. You know, that's kind of where it began a little bit. And we allowed that to happen. We know we've just sat by and allowed all this shit to happen. And now we're here. But anyway, so there's that, the ethical part of it, which also it's quite possible that we, you know, our media, our mainstream media has been infiltrated for a long time and we just didn't know it. And they've been feeding us bullshit for a long, since Kennedy was killed, you know. But um, so there's that too. And we're getting a little bit of, you know, they always make some truth in to, for plausible deniability and all that. But there's also the issue of quality, which for me is pretty, is a big deal. <clears throat> and so I have seen, I mean, we're seeing a decline in quality in everything at this point, in every sector of society. Right. And I also, I feel like that's also by design and was really, you know, uh, pushed much faster, accelerated by social media, the advent of social media. But anyway, so there's this great book. It's a book and it was also a documentary. And the documentary is obviously easier to consume, but it's called The Cult of the Amateur. I can't remember who it's by. It's pretty life-changing, and I highly recommend anybody to check this out because it really shows you how – it's a little tiny bit dated, but it shows you how technology ruined – it destroyed quality in so many different fields because uh, suddenly everybody was a photographer. Everybody had the tools to become all these different things, you know, that once upon a time you didn't you didn't have those tools. And so you couldn't take an amazing photo that no one else could replicate. You couldn't, you know, necessarily, you know, you could maybe write something really good, but you couldn't publish it. And so, um, so what has happened over time now is that, that the sort of proliferation of all of these tools combined with this need everybody seems to have now to be to have so much attention and have you know be in the spotlight and all that has created this enormous culture of mediocrity and so like for me i you know i'm really old school like in all the different ways and as an editor i am uh, old school and i'm and uh when I read anything, you know, I just have that eye. I, I have a trained eye. I see, I see pretty much every mistake, every, you know, just uh, not just blatant mistakes, but just bad writing, you know, just right. people that don't, people who aren't taking the time to really make sure that their shit makes sense, that, that this sentence agrees with that sentence and just stuff like that, or staying in the same tense throughout an article and things like that on top of that at a certain point i would say starting about maybe 10 years ago a lot of the publications started firing all of the copy editors that was a big thing that that happened and that caused a huge decline because it's a really important if you want quality you need that's quality control it's a huge part of of the equation and Everybody just, you know, it's the same thing of cutting corners because uh, uh, you want more profit, but also, you know, the internet made 
journalism is well print journalism much less profitable and then turned into a total shit show online and now you know some people are trying to resurrect that a little bit like epic times i think is doing a good job i actually subscribe to epic times paper like i actually that's do you get their magazine i don't get get their magazine magazine? i get their newspaper okay let me tell you their newspaper is really good let me tell you that their magazine is incredible. Really? This magazine they put out I didn't even about know they had America. One. Oh my god. It is on every level. The quality is is amazing. The art direction, the writing, this it's the it's a gorgeous full color magazine that's just devoted to everything that's beautiful and good about our country. It's like a lot of human interest stuff, you know, and it's beautiful. Well, I'm going to have to check it out then. It's not cheap. It's not super cheap. But anyway, it's like a coffee table kind of thing. But then mm-hmm. it, there, there's so much content. So they're one of the few <clears throat> people that are really trying. There's so much garbage in our neck of the woods um, that calls itself journalism. Right. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't I'm not going to say, but there are some, there is some crap, you know, where, I mean, yeah. So that's a a huge need in, in the, the quote unquote conservative world, patriot, liberty, whatever in that neighborhood, there is a desperate need for quality journalism. And I think that they have it. Those people have their hearts are in the right place. They have the ethical um, fortitude, but they don't understand the quality issue. And I actually volunteered for an organization whose I will not say their name, but it was uh, led by someone that I really believed in. And, um, you know, they're all like good people and great researchers, but they're not great writers, most of them, and they need a lot of help. And so I volunteered for a little while to edit. And they were putting out a pretty good amount of content and I volunteered to edit the stuff for a little while, but unfortunately, cause I'm kind of, I can be kind of intense with that stuff. And sure. then these people didn't want, they didn't want to, they didn't want to do the work at the end of the day, they didn't want to do the work. And it's like, unfortunately in this time you can get away with that. You can get away with not wanting to do the work of becoming really good at what you're doing, of of because the elevating world the mediocrity. Quality. Exactly, and that that is so depressing. I mean, <laughs> really, somebody is. has got to keep this thing alive, you know. Yeah, but um, on the other hand, go ahead. I just want to say, um, on the topic of quality and and stuff. That that is alive in other things, you know, like craftsmanship and and, you know, like handmade goods and things like that in our world. Like there is a huge um, like growing community of people that are really into that. And and I love that. And I feel like they're the people ultimately that are in some ways going to save us, you know, are those people who care about about quality quality not just in in goods and 
and services, but quality in life in general. Like you have really good, really wholesome people that want to see true American values survive. Yes. And I try really hard to gravitate and surround myself with those types of people. Me too. And support them financially. I try to buy their stuff. I try to, you know, um, just opt in to that as much as possible while opting out of, you know, Amazon and China shit and, you know, but it's just you, not everybody can do that. Not everybody. No, you're right. I I was listening to a podcast episode with um, Javier Goya and Braxton McCoy, and they were talking about, you know, would people really be willing to pay for what it takes to bring things like we talk about, let's bring manufacturing back, but are you willing to sacrifice and pay for what it would cost to actually do that? And the answer, the bottom line answer is many people won't or even can't. Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, this is a crazy time to, you know, think about that because so many people are struggling right now and everything is crumbling and dying around us, you know, and I, but I feel like, and I don't remember who it was that put this on Twitter like yesterday or something. It was so awesome is that this is going to, I think they were speaking specifically about the supply chain situation. Well, I think Braxton and, and Javier were also, but they were saying that eventually if this thing gets just worse and worse and worse and worse, you know, uh, there, the demand there, it, the demand doesn't just go away. So the demand for it and the inability to access these things will create the, the need here and people here will begin, will fill the gap. And then the price will, the prices I think will come down just out of necessity. I mean, I don't know. I, I think, I'm really hopeful that on every single area, healthcare, <clears throat> manufacturing, um, all of this stuff, I, I'm hopeful that completely new versions of these things are going to be born out of the ashes of, you know, wh- the ruins what is of what's right now. There, right yeah. Now, yeah. And, you know, honestly, I mean, that stuff needs to die. A lot of those things need to die. It's painful. Death is painful. You know, loss is painful. And I think we're all grieving on a certain level right now. But on the other side of it, I I really think that just amazing things are going to be born. Better things. That's such a great I white keep, pill. I feel like like I that's saying not something that. that many people have right now. A lot of people are are very black-pilled right now. They're very negative. And so to hear someone say that is just, it's very refreshing because that's what I believe too. Um, I, you know, I made the comment the other day, I was like, my children will dance in the ashes of your ruins. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love that. Um, Because I, you know, I, I'm just going to continue to invest in them and continue to, to help them thrive so that when they are 
ready to take over, they, they will do what they need to do. I, I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I have black pill days. Definitely. I have some dark days, you know, where I'm yeah. like, oh man, I mean, I get scared of, I don't want to get the dreaded thing that I haven't gotten yet. Thank you, Jesus. But you know, I, have, I don't want to, I don't want to move, you know, out of California, even though I probably do need to. I, there's so many things I don't really want to do. But, you know, and on those days where I'm contemplating those things a lot, or just when, you know, if you when you when you have those moments where you accidentally find yourself on the other side for a minute, I mean, right. you know, and you see what they're saying, and it's like, holy shit, it's like staring into the abyss. You know, <laughs> like people really think this like, this is what people really think. Because I'm lucky everybody in my inner circle, we're on the same, we're all on the same team. And so, so I, I lost a friend. I lost one friend like a year ago, you know, for politics and all that stuff. She called me a conspiracy theorist. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. And so, and this was one of my closest friends. And then a year later, she came crawling back, you know, right. and was like, holy shit. And she started asking me all these questions, you know, and, and now, and it's so funny. So uh, now she's trying to red pill me all the time, but, um, but anyway, so she came now, back in the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So now we're friends. She's back in my life. I'm so grateful, but I, I know some of my closest friends have lost their children their relationships with their grown children, their yeah. relationships with their parents, you know, so many people. I mean, there's a lot of loss happening and it's, and it's like, it's not what we want. I mean, it's not, it wasn't our design for this shit to happen. Although many of many opted in uh, knowingly or unknowingly, you know, and they still are, but um, they're not just opting yeah. in. Now they're like asking for they're it, going begging hard. for more of it. They're going hard. Yeah. They want to see us dead and all kinds of crazy shit. And yeah. I won't go there. Like that's, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't really like to call myself a Christian, but, um, you know, I'm not, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to allow myself to get, to go there, you know, right. to, I'm not going to let them destroy me, but I'm not going to hope for their destruction i'm hoping for their salvation sure you know yeah that's the ideal i mean that's the ideal is everybody wakes up and turns this you know flips the script do you think that um from a journalistic perspective do you think that like i i really wanted to see a bunch of after Trump was no longer in office. I really wanted to see a bunch of mainstream, not because I wanted people to lose their jobs because the, there, it was like this double-edged sword for me. Like I didn't want people to lose their jobs, but I really wanted to see like MSNBC, Fox News, CNN. I wanted to see them have to file bankruptcy. Like I did not want them to be able to function anymore. And I wanted to see a concerted effort to try to put these organizations in check to say, look, nobody trusts you. Nobody believes anything that you put out anymore. Start being more ethical. 
I've seen nothing anywhere close to that indication. It it would appear as if they are continuing to be garbage. So do you see at any point in time where journalism actually does make a shift where they go back to actually reporting and not sensationalizing? Or do you think that it's either just going to have to end or, or just nobody's going to, we're just all going to have to turn it off? <clears throat> well, I think it's complex because, you know, that, that rule in journalism about if it bleeds, it leads, you know, it's like, <laughs> there's a re that's because people like drama. And so, right. um, but so if there's a demand for that, if that's what gets views or whatever, then they will, there's no reason to end it for them. But now what's happening is we're starting to get a little tired of drama, I think. And um, also starting to, I mean, I think just even normal people, you know, normies, I mean, whatever that means, <laughs> but I think those people are also starting to see the patterns. I mean, at a certain, it's like, I don't know how stupid you have to be to not see the patterns after a little while and put right. two and two together, you know? So at a certain, it's going to require the demand to go away and it's happening, but it's happening slowly. And they're also in the midst of it, they are getting funding or I don't know how they're staying afloat, but so somebody is putting money into them to allow them to continue. It's because artificial. Their viewership like doesn't everything. match the amount of money that they're having to hemorrhage to stay in business. That's right. And and the advertise so just by sort of um by extension then their advertising should drop off i mean every it should have a cascading sort of effect so there's something artificial happening and I, it's probably our government or all of our governments together putting money you know in those things because right. in essence i mean they that's who they're working for at this point they are working yeah. for the got these governments and so um they are state run news at this point so yeah that is and, and it, sadly that means we're paying for it which just makes me absolutely sick and i don't even know that's a whole other subject but um <laughs> yeah, we don't have time don't for that one because i've already had you for a whole I hour know. <laughs> oh okay so here's what i want i want you to tell the audience <laughs> Where they can find your work and where they can follow you and and get to know you and engage with you because you are <clears> one <throat> of my favorite people that I have just I, – I still don't even know like how you and I ended up interacting with one another. But some of the little tidbits, like I said in the beginning that you have dropped, I'm just like, God – like I just – I can't wait till your book is finished so I can just like read it all the way through. Um, but please tell everybody <laughs> where they can find you and and – where all the things are. Okay. Well, so my book is simply a memoir. It's from my time, my shenanigans in the eighties, being a makeup artist, being in the punk rock scene. And it's basically based around all of my different, like my love life at that time. So <laughs> that's the, it's framed within all of my relationships and stuff kind of. And so it's, I don't know. It's not, it's not, meaningful it's not really meaningful at this point oh, but, I think However, it, but your it, writing is so good like I it, it was funny I was um reading to my husband I was reading like your 
intro little thing that you talk about and where you talk about how much you love hair and how you learn to do it or whatever. But um, I, I was reading it and I was just like, God, isn't she so amazing? Like, <laughs> so Aww, I, I was, I was nice. cheering you. I really love your writing. So it, that's sweet. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, so if anybody's interested, if anyone's interested in that kind of stuff, um, my blog is where I just publish like little, you know, tidbits of um chat from chapters i'm probably like i don't know i'm like four chapters away from being done i think but um so that is uh that blog can be found at punk and in love.com p-u-n-k and in love.com and then that's pretty much it my other website is really just where i send people who maybe want to hire me as an editor, I don't want to, I don't do professional writing anymore because I hate it. And it's, it's just an insane amount of work for the money, but I love editing. So I've edited a couple of books recently. So anyway, that website is just where my, some of my clips from my career and my, uh, my Hunter Thompson story. I don't know if you read that. Yes. Will you, okay, wait, wait, wait. I, I know I've had you longer than I promised, but will you tell your Hunter S Thompson story, please? Yeah, just okay. So I've Hunter Thompson is my biggest influence as a writer. And um, there was a, a movie coming out about him called Breakfast with Hunter. This is like, I don't know, in the early 2000s, maybe something like that. And it turned out that the guy that was producing it lived in my town. And so I, that meant that I it was in my purview. And I could maybe write about it. So I reviewed the movie and I became friendly with the producer and went to his house and stuff. And, um, and then I wrote an article about it and he like, I, I can't remember how soon it was after that article came out. I got a phone call one night from him saying, Hunter wants your phone number. <laughs> and I was like, what? And How cool he's like, is yeah, that? he wants your phone. I know it's the coolest. Honestly, it's probably the coolest thing in my life, I think. So he's like, yeah, he wants your phone number because um, he really liked the article. He wants to talk to you. I'm like, wow. So I gave him my phone number, never heard from Hunter. And then I guess a year went by and he, you know, killed himself. And then I sent condolences to this guy because they were really, they were next door neighbors in Colorado. This guy lived half the year where I live, half the year in Colorado. And so <clears throat> I, um, I sent condolences, you know, and he wrote me back to tell me that the reason Hunter wanted my number that a long time ago was he really liked my writing and he wanted to tell me. And I mean, I just, there isn't a bigger compliment than that for me. No, how cool is that? It's such, like, hearing you tell the story is even better than reading about it, but that's so awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So anyways, um, that kind of stuff lives on my other website, which nobody cares about unless they want to hire me, in which case they can hit me up on Twitter. And my Twitter is at free f-r-e-e radical punk i love it 
I will put all of the links and the your um your at in in the description for the podcast. But I, I wish very I wish much... we got to talk about freedom. I sorry, <laughs> sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, you're uh... fine. Um, well, I mean, I have time. Do you want to talk a little bit longer? I mean, I can. I don't want to be annoying. You're not annoying. I love talking <laughs> I don't wanna... to you. I just. I don't ever like to keep people for too long because then they're like, God, this is so boring. I don't want to talk anymore. Oh, I mean, I'm not bored. I just don't want to bore your listeners. Oh, they're not. Are you kidding me? You just told a story about Hunter S. Thompson wanting to call you. So, no, I don't think they're going to be bored. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about freedom and how we don't have it anymore and it's just an illusion now. We have a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back through this podcast and edit any time that we said vaccine or um, or whatever the other banned words are that I can't have on YouTube. Ah, dang it. If I if I had known that in advance, we could have had a code word. (laughs) I did that with my last episode. (laughs) We called it the jab. (laughs) Oh, well, like that's like no one uses that. I listened Apparently, to that, by the way. You mean the, the algorithm guy, doesn't catch it. That, like, oh. Yeah. Because they can't monitor every single thing that comes out. So they have like where – because so I'll just briefly tell you a story really fast. So I went to a protest where I was filming and talking to some parents that were protesting masks in my local community, interviewing them for my podcast. And Mm -hmm. as I'm talking to them, a woman comes up beside me and you always know like when a woman's getting pissed off, right? Like they start breathing heavy and their arms are crossed (laughs) and they like shift their legs back and forth. Like, you know, you're getting ready to get Karen, right? So Mm -hmm. this woman is over to my left doing all of this huffing and, and shifting her weight. And finally she starts railing on the woman that I was interviewing. So what naturally... I turned my camera towards her and start interviewing her. And she was saying all manner of insanity. I put it on YouTube. It lasted no less than five minutes. And then I got a, I got flagged for misinformation because she was talking about masks. And I said that masks do not prevent transmission. And it says so on the side of the box. And that one sentence, which I'll have to go edit this out now, but that one sentence <laughs> made my video get flagged. And it's like, if you get another strike, then we're going to take your channel down. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what kind oh. of world is this now at this point? So, yes, we are we are yeah, free are to all- say the things we want to say. We just can't publish them or put them out for anyone else to hear. Yeah, we're free to be punished for them, mm-hmm. you know, which I, I proudly today I wore my new hoodie, which I have to tell you, the words could be a little bigger. Okay. The words become ungovernable. I want them to be bigger, you know. <laughs> okay, so, that- <laughs> so I, they, I am given like a little <laughs> space to put them in and they were right on the threshold. They wouldn't have printed the letters if I made it any bigger. Yeah. They're like right under my boobs and it's kind of, you know, 
<laughs> so people have to know. look at your boobs to read it. I mean, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> but I, w- <laughs> I went out in public. I went for a walk and I was wearing, proudly wearing it and just hoping somebody would see it and think about it for a second, you know, like. I, I love it that you wore it. Yeah, because where I live is very liberal. Well, it appears, you know, here's the thing. We're not we're not being shown what's real. So everything, so much is being suppressed that unless you actually know, you know, thousands of people in your town personally, you don't really know what's going on or where people stand, but you get it from next door, which is a total piece of shit. I hate next door, but in my town next door is just nothing but um, mask Nazis and stuff, you know? And so I'm just, I just lurk you know, and get a sense of what I'm up against. But in my own like neighborhood, it's weird. Like sometimes there will be these periods where nobody's wearing a mask and I'm like, Oh, thank God this, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, as they're kicking up the fear factor, then you start kind of seeing it like, Oh, you know, you start seeing people in their cars and all that stuff. And um, so it's hard to gauge, you know, but then my friend who lives on another part of town that's like kind of more conservative, he tells me that it's totally different over there. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody gives a shit, you know, and they're not, you know, really enforcing it. At the farmer's market here where I go almost every weekend, you know, because I'm white, because I'm a white nationalist and I love farmer's markets more than anything. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you know about that right. thing that just came out. Okay. So anyway, I, the farmer's market got destroyed by COVID to where they put a barrier. It's like an outdoor thing. They put a barrier around it for a whole year. There was a barrier around it and you had to wait in line and then, you know, it took forever. And then when you got in there, you had to have your mask on. Oh, you had to have your mask on while you were in line actually. And then, you know, it was just like a whole thing. And they, you know, it's like you give people a little bit of power and they just go crazy with it. And then they want to, it's like, they want to, they don't, only want to control you have to wear a mask you have to stand in line blah 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 now you also have to enter the booth from this side and it's like none of it makes any sense you know in terms of preventing spread of disease none of it makes any sense and so that went on for like a year and it was misery and I kind of stopped going and then they loosened it and now there's just a sandwich board that says if you have been vaccinated, or I mean, you know, sorry, if you got the jab, you can, you can, you don't have to wear a mask, but it's like on an honor system, which also doesn't make any sense. And so when I go there, you know, at first, nobody was wearing one. And then and neither was I, I was, I was stoked, you know, and, and I would break the rules. I liked to break the rules sometimes, like enter from the wrong side, like, like I can't imagine you being on the other- a big fan of punk <laughs> wanting to be a rebel and break the rules. I know. Well, I mean, you have to choose your battles too. You don't, you, right. know, you have to be a little bit, it's like, it's like a balance of being, keeping a low profile, you know, and also like not submitting. So sure. it's like, 
it's kind of a weird, a delicate balance. But anyway, I don't know why I'm going on and on about this, but I guess that's one place in my life where it was like, I really could witness, you know, what was happening, you know, and I would cry. I, at first, when I would, after I would leave there, I would get in my car and just start bawling because yeah. I was like traumatized by it. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is real life. Like, how is this real? And and I hate wearing those things. Like, I can't breathe. You know, you can't wear glasses. Like, I can't wear my sunglasses. And so it just how weird everybody became. And like, like, no fate. You can't really see facial expressions. And right. everybody was just so um, afraid of everybody else. The whole vibe was just so bad. And, and um, so, but then you meet people here and there and who like kind of on the DL, like let you know that you're playing on the same team, you know, like just you go to the store or whatever and you're both kind of like not, you know, you walk in and then you take your mask off once you get in the store kind of thing. And, you know, you and then you look at each other and, and you, you get like, like the little nod. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of that going on, like a lot. And so in some ways I feel like just the same way that we feel about the election, for instance, that's probably a, a borderline bad word, but, sure. um, or subject, but it's the similar thing. It's like, we know that the truth, I mean, we have a sense that the truth is like over here, but what they're telling us is over there, you know, the truth is usually in the somewhere in the middle, you know, but yeah. um, it's the same kind of thing. So you have basically at this stage of, of the game, it's like we have our instincts and we have our, our moral core, you know, our faith, whatever. And that's what we, that's like what we have to go on at this point. You know, we have, it's like, there's no information you can really trust. There's, you know, and so you have to just be your own, you kind of have to be your own journalist in a sense. You have to go out and gather information and, and then you have to see patterns. You know, you have to get good at this stuff. You have to read people. You have to like have conversations with people, you know, and, and then you take all of that data that you've gathered and, and then you make some kind of sense out of it and then you figure out how to proceed. Yeah. I, I also think it's important that people like, I don't know, man, I, there was a girl who, who said something this morning that just really just set my whole day off. And she was talking about how the foundation of freedom was, was founded on like, I can't even remember what she said, but it made no sense. And she's like, what you're talking about is selfish or irresponsible. And it's like, no, that's not, that's I not think what I freedom is. <laughs> was she talking about freedom being, having something to do with taking care of people? No. I don't know. I feel like not. I've seen that. I'll see if I can find the one that, she, that I'm talking about, but. She said, oh, hang on. The whole freedom thing, it's like, it's not, I don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of room for debate, you know? I don't think it's, I think it's pretty damn cut and dried what freedom is. 
I mean, I, I just, I don't understand. It's not that nuanced. Yeah, her direct quote was, freedom was built on the premise of discipline and wisdom. The freedom that you are describing is selfishness. And I was like, no, selfish is wanting something Wrong. only for yourself. Freedom is for everyone. The government, you, Karen down the street, nobody gets to make decisions for anyone else when it comes to their life, their liberty, and their property. And it's interesting because these people think that utilizing government to force people to do something against their will that is the actual definition of fascism. Like, that's not freedom. Like, saying, oh, governor, I want you to make everybody do something that I want them to do. That's not That's not freedom. Like, in what world, what twisted sense yeah. do you think that that makes, that that's freedom, right? It's, it's, it's a cop-out. It's a huge cop-out. They don't. They don't want to take personal responsibility. Oh my God. They don't I say want this every day. Even, yeah, they don't want to be responsible even for confronting the things that they don't like. They want the government to somebody else to do that for them. They want a daddy, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, and they've also been conditioned or whatever to believe that we actually are. Those of us who are not, you know, doing whatever it is they want us to do, that we are a threat to their lives. They've been, they believe this. And that's the, that's the thing that's really hard to break through. You know, they, they believe in their, you in believe their that, core. They believe that we are bad people because we may disagree with them. Right. And I mean, that's tricky because... I can fall into that space too, <laughs> feeling that way about them. You know, I mean, that's a very, that's like I was saying before. I mean, it's a really slippery slope. And some days I'm very angry. And some days I have hate. I feel hateful toward these people that don't understand what is happening. And, and, you know, I have to check myself in those, in those times and, and, I have to pull myself out of it because that's not going to, that is not going to cure this. I mean, yeah, there's like a, a part of me and I'm sure a lot of other people and I follow, you know, a lot of people on Twitter who are like in the anarchist group and I don't really, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but there is a part of me that's extreme and feels like, yeah, burn it all down. You know, there is that, that part of me exists. And, um, you know, uh, but generally speaking, you know, I don't wish anybody harm and I really don't want things to come to that. So it's like, yeah, you have to, you know, kind of talk yourself off the ledge a little bit. But I, and there is something almost romantic about the idea of battling it out. Right. You know, I, I mean, anybody that's actually been to war would be like, ah, uh, no you're wrong and but i think that there is a little bit of um i don't know there's like a thrill you know we don't we don't have to you know we haven't for a very long time had to fight for our survival and that's right. a core part of being human 
you know, that's, that's, that's a huge part of being human and being an American. Yes. And so because we've lost that, I think that we all, we all desire it. Like deep down, there's a part of us that gets excited about the idea of being kind of having to, I don't know, step out of our comfort zone, even if we're terrified of that or whatever. So it makes us, you know, be, you know, kind of flirt with some ideas that if they really came to pass, we probably wouldn't be too excited, you know. And that's why we need really, we need sane, <laughs> we need sane, intelligent people, um, you know, leading the way a little bit. But um, what am I trying to say? So, yeah, it's like <sighs> something, basically, I feel that we're not going to come into any type of agreement until we all are feeling about the same level of pain. Right. You know, and loss. And so right now we're feeling the, a lot of pain and loss that's real, but they're not, they're kind of not because they're celebrating, you know, going to concerts and right. whatever, you know, and, and, and like, when the economy starts diving really hard and, you know, all of that, all the other things start coming into play and those people begin to suffer, like really suffer, I think they're going to start. But I, I just think it's going to it's taking them a lot longer. It's going to take they're they're so conditioned that it's going to take a lot for them to kind of break free from their stupor. And then we have to welcome them like then it's like at that point we have to find compassion and 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 then all come together and i know like a lot of people disagree with that and really want to see uh, the division and the divorce and all of that but i just don't think that that's that that's healthy yeah i mean it's interesting in, that you in say the that. lamest way to say it you make one point, and then I want to kind of add a secondary point. So, um, the first is the uh, the lack of personal responsibility, but the comf- the comfort that that we live in as a society right now, right? So, we are an incredibly comfortable society. We have nothing but first world problems, and yeah, I have been all over the world. I have seen, gosh, man, I have seen legitimate oppression, depression, poverty. I've seen what that looks like on a large scale. And we don't, that's not here. This is a very rich, plentiful country if you want it to be. And that's not to say that there aren't people who are in bad situations. That's not what I'm saying. And I hope that doesn't come across that way. But um, as a general rule, our society in the United States is incredibly comfortable. We don't hurt for anything. We don't have other countries coming here to invade us. We don't have, you know what I mean? Like that just, we're a very comfortable society. And until that changes, until people aren't able to be completely comfortable the way that they want to, on a large scale, you're 100% correct. Things will stay pretty much as they are. 
Um, the second thing you touched on is like when the economy tanks and really tanks, that that other side is going to hurt. I think it's interesting because it, I, I get into these kind of conversations and debates with the measurement of wealth, right? So my version of wealth is very vastly different. And I, I would even argue, and we could go into this conversation some other time, but I would even argue that that divide is maybe rural America versus urban America, right? So like my definition of wealth is my skills. Like what am I capable of doing if I need to? Can I start a fire? Can I cook outside? Can I raise a garden? Can I, you know, can vegetable, you know, like what skills and resources do I have on my own if I had to use them? Um, and then the second thing is my my family, my children. Are they fed both physically and mentally? Am I challenging them? Am I teaching them? You know, that gives me a vast amount of wealth. So the things that make me happy or make me feel whole and full are not material items that I will have to sacrifice. They are not, I I can live with my children in a tent in the woods if I had to. And I don't think many people are capable of saying that same thing, if that makes sense. And so my wealth is not measured in items. And I think we have become a society that that does measure their wealth in material possessions. And so when you talk about coming together, I don't even know if if it's possible. Like, do I want that to happen? Oh, man, I'm kind of torn on that because, you know, looking at somebody tell me I deserve to die or shouldn't get treated in the hospital if I get sick or, you know, my kids should die. You know, like the horrible fucking things that these people say just because you chose not to get a vaccination. Fuck, I'm going to have to edit that out because you chose not to get the jab. Um, I... It's going to be really hard for me when things do get difficult to welcome those people into like my arms and be like, it's okay. Um, I still love you. You're still, you know, <laughs> like it's going to be really hard for me. So do I think that that's what's going to be necessary to move forward? I do wholeheartedly agree with you. Am I going to be capable of doing it? I don't know that I can say yes to that question. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to humility, really, on both sides. It's like, okay, so the shit comes down, all you know, the shelves are empty, everybody's freaking out, the banks are closed, and somebody, you know, people start, some of these people that wished that you would die a month ago are now, like, they, they're coming at you with violence and trying to steal your stuff. I'm not probably going to have a lot of mercy for that person i you know i might for like a minute you know just kind of see like if i show them mercy you know i mean i don't know i'm not a warrior i mean for real you know so but my my gut tells me that (laughs) my gut tells me that if i i have about a a very brief moment to determine whether or not this person really wishes me harm 
or they just think they wish they they have to wish me harm in order to survive. Right. If they really wish me harm and don't know another way, like they're a zombie, well, then it's over. But if they show some type of humility, uh, just a glimpse of it, where no, what they actually want is just to survive, just like me, you know, and then I I, I have too big of a heart. I'm going to be like, okay, you know, I mean, probably to the extent that I, I, I can share, you know, what I have to share. So I think that humility is necessary on both sides. I could be an asshole and that person could come to me and be like, oh my gosh, I was so wrong, you know? Right. And I could be like, oh, see you later. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you were, bitch. But that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I, I mean, I, I, that's not really who I am. But who knows in the actual moment what it will look sure. like either. I mean, I don't sure. know. I've imagined these scenarios. I've imagined these for all the years that I've been knowing this was going to happen and knowing innately that I needed to get ready for it. And so... I'm in a suburban setting. It's not, I'm like on the coast, you know, it's very laid back, sleepy coastal town. It's not really urban, but it's not rural, you know, and, um, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I, I have ideas, but, and what if it does there, what if we don't get there? I mean, you know, you have to believe that anything is possible. Although, honestly, everything from astrology to um, the generational things like, you know, the fourth turning. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's all these different things that are pointing to this being an ending. We're at an ending. And, you know, it's really going to come down to it's like. I'm like you. I love the Constitution. I love it. I love all. I love the founding principles of this country. I love being free. I didn't used to know what that meant when I was when I was a liberal or thought I was a liberal. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand. Now I do. But um, you know, I love all of that, and I don't want to see it go away. And I, I want to see us return to it. You know, I want to see a full return to that. To me, it's a beautiful, beautiful, divinely inspired, you know, not system. What's the word for it? But anyway, but we might, that might not happen. We might, everything has a shelf life. Right. You know, and we might, we, we, we could be there. And that's okay if we can birth something better out of it, like we we're saying before. But, you know, who at the same time, I mean, anything is possible or the asteroid will come. <laughs> Yay, the asteroid. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I read something yesterday. They have the Department of Defense and the Pentagon have uh, have briefed somebody to say that they have other world vehicles. So maybe the aliens are coming and we just are just not here yet. Coming to save us or hurt us? Uh, well, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe we didn't do the right things. Maybe the experiment is over. The experiment might be over. It, I hate. I would hate to say that it failed, but 
you know, if it did fail, it's our fault. We right. allowed it to fail. I mean, I take responsibility for that too. For just rest, you know, kind of just being comfortable and being comfy and thinking that it was always going to be like this and not having to, and, and, and for voting for horrible people that tricked me, that I allowed to trick me, you know, into thinking we're good people or whatever. And, you know, we all have a part to play in this, but ultimately the most important part that we have to play, I think, is to not, not allow our humanity to be destroyed at all costs. I love that. Um, there's a gentleman, and I don't know if you follow him. I'm going to shoot you his username to see if you do, but I'm not going to say his name out loud, but he spends a lot of time in my spaces. And then he and I are, are personally friends now. And um, he is very much a white pill. You guys remind me of one another. So um, you guys should follow one another because he's he's very much a like, okay. let's not lose this. This is still the greatest country in the world. We still have the ability. Is he to from do- an, is he American? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of times those people aren't aren't American, you know, they're they're immigrants, you know, because they have that perspective. Right. No, he's American. He's very red blooded American guy. Like he's a good dude. Um, And I love you so much for coming on with me, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a surprise that was. So, yeah, thanks. No problem. All right, you take care. Everybody, go follow her on all the places. Go read her stuff. She's amazing. Um, You guys have a good night and take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!